Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Art Prokoff, who is obviously, as you will tell in a moment, has a very thick Russian accent and he's from Russia and it's a country that has been exploring a lot of radical innovations that we have not dived, dove deeply into the United States. And he's going to share some of those insights with him today. And I'm particularly fascinated in understanding his perception of mitochondrial function, because that is without any question or doubt, one of the single most important strategies you can do to optimize your cellular energy. And it's the core of almost everything that you do to improve your health is mitochondrial function. So anything that addresses and improves that is an interest of mine. So that's one of the reasons why I invited you here today. So welcome and thank you for joining us. First of all, thank you very much for invitation. Uh, I must say that I'm your follower since 2001. Wow, that's 23 <laughs> years, 23 years. Exactly, I was working in New York City and I found out that your uh, broadcasts and your books are very, very motivating, interesting, and since then I'm following you. Oh, good. Well, you're a wise man. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully you can share some of your wisdom with me. Yeah, uh, I hope. Yeah, so why don't you first start by giving us a little bit of background for your history, because clearly you've, you've been trained in Russia and have, yes. acquired, have acquired some significant expertise. And I'd, I'd like to know if you can share that with us now. Yes, I uh, graduated from Moscow Medical University in uh, 1980. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, I, I worked uh, about one year in emergency as emergency doctor, but my interest was always in the biomedical research, specifically research with divers, with mm -hmm. professional divers. Mm -hmm. So I entered my uh, postgraduate studies and I was uh, doing my dissertation on the topic of improvement of stress resistance in divers. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, uh, it was very interesting because we uh, all people who were involved, they should first of all do experimentation on themselves. Mm -hmm. So we first graduated as divers, professional divers, and then uh, conducting a lot of experiments in barrel chamber and also in open water and so on. And yes. that was... Excuse me for a uh, moment, but would, wouldn't diving be a simulation of hyperbaric therapy? Yes, of course. In many aspects, uh, diving is uh, actually, it's, it's a kind of simulation yeah, of hyperbaric mm -hmm. treatment. And moreover, we use uh, barrow chambers hyperbaric oxygenation for many conditions associated with diving trauma, mm -hmm. like bends and barrow trauma and so on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I was working 10 years in this research, but then the situation changed in Russia and uh, these um, studies were cut significantly and I just returned back to medical practice. Mm. And what I learned during this uh, studying of physiology of diving and the stress resistance of divers, it helped immensely by application of this knowledge to a lot of various diseases, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. such as asthma, hypertension, chronic inflammation, and uh, uh, some chronic infections. Mm -hmm. And I was always interested uh, what is the best option, application of oxygen treatment mm -hmm. to stimulate non-specific, not specific stress resistance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And from many, many uh, studies, it became clear, paradoxically, that the most efficient interventions 
is intermittent hypoxic treatment. Mm. So since uh, 1994, I was working in Germany first mm -hmm. uh, in a private practice. Well, but before we go before we go there, I think it might be wise to explore what is intermittent hypoxia therapy. I know what it is, but I think if you can explain that and then also the origins of its history, where did it start from? Was it in Russia? Yeah, uh, actually, uh, scientific application of intermittent hypoxic treatment started in Russia in at, at the end of seventies. Okay. Uh, because uh, paradoxically, it was found that uh, intermittent controlled normobaric hypoxia is much more efficient than continuous hypoxic, uh, hypoxia, such mm -hmm. as, for instance, in uh, hyperbaric chambers or in the mountains. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> this uh, discovery was made by Professor Chizhov. He studied hypoxic treatment in various applications, first of all, as a radioprotective mm -hmm. treatment, yeah, because during irradiation, if you reduce partial pressure of oxygen, uh, we, uh, we, we see then a significant protective effect on healthy tissues. Mm -hmm. Tumor tissues are not protected because they are already hypoxic, mm -hmm. and they don't feel this small... Uh, decrease of oxygen partial pressure. But for healthy tissues, it's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And then he found out that intermittent hypoxia is uh, taking place during embryonic development. Mm. So in uterus and even before fertilization, uh, there are significant uh, changes, uh, variation of partial pressure of oxygen, oscillations mm -hmm. of oxygen. In, in uterus. And uh, it was uh, not clear what is the purpose, physiological purpose of these uh, oscillations. And now, decades later, we understand that this is a powerful mechanism to control quality of mitochondria. Mm. Yeah. And uh, intermittent hypoxia is very, uh, is very often in, in the nature. For instance, when we have some physical activity, when we stress our muscles, when they are contracted, mm -hmm. the circulation is blocked and muscle experience some kind of hypoxia. Then during relaxation, blood delivery is again open and uh, muscles become again oxygen and nutrients. Mm -hmm. And this is the universal mechanism which is uh, providing continuous repair, recovery mm -hmm. of the mitochondria and other cellular structures. Mm. So uh, why not to use this natural mechanism to apply it for other purposes like enhancement of uh, endurance in athletes? Mm -hmm. And now it is, it, it is very well known as altitude training, mm -hmm. uh, thousands and thousands of athletes use altitude training to stimulate recovery, to stimulate uh, function, functionality, and uh, it's a lot of applications. So can you tell us how it was implemented initially in the 70s in Russia and then what the most current applications are now and how, basically how it's utilized? I mean, the, the mechanics of it, what it looks like. So it looks like, yeah, because, you know, in a very simple way, it can be uh, simulated without any uh, devices, just mm -hmm. by holding your breath mm -hmm. intermittently. For instance, now it's very well met by Wim Hof, mm -hmm. who just, you know, recovered a very old variant of uh, pranayama at, uh, briefing, so-called uh, um, so it is called. Everybody knows what is uh, Wim Hof briefing, yeah? Mm -hmm. But we can do the same without stress of hyperventilation, without reducing carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. just providing intermittent flow of oxygen-depleted air in, to the mask. Mm -hmm. The patient just using the face mask and the device 
uh, delivers intermittently hypoxic air with controlled amount of oxygen and room air or even hyperoxic air. So now we have the fourth generation of such machines. They are called hypoxicators. Mm -hmm. They, are, um, they have biofeedback, they are computer controlled, mm -hmm. and they allow to form all kinds of treatments, all kinds of protocols. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've got one of those units. I've had it for about a year. And it's essentially, it's a cube, maybe two and a half foot cube, maybe three, somewhere around that, probably two and a half feet, 30 inches. And uh, it essentially delivers, as you said, this combination of hypoxic and the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere and at sea level is close to 20%. And 20, uh, yeah, uh, 20, 21%. So, yeah. Above. Yeah. So, 21%. So, that you it modulates it down to therapeutic levels, which seems to start about 14% and can go down as even to 10 or even a little bit lower. But that's in the dangerous levels. And uh, you stay there for a few minutes, maybe even up to seven, eight or nine, 10 minutes. And, and then you uh, adjust to that and you, and you get this hyperoxic air. So in, in the case of my unit, it goes up to 34% oxygen. And then you, that's only for a minute or two and then you cycle back and forth. Exactly. And, and, and then it's an interesting experience because you can't do much in that environment. So typically what you do, or at least what I've done is listen to, sound music i mean you could listen to podcasts but <laughs> i don't think it's a good idea so you listen to music and you go into a meditation exactly yeah exactly. and that that gives you better benefits and so i'm intrigued with it and i didn't there's not a lot of research on this well maybe there's a lot of research it's not a lot written that's available in pubmed that's for sure i couldn't find it and maybe there, i just didn't know what to search for but i i'm curious as to one of the reasons I invited you is to help me understand how this is working. I know it works. There's no question. My, my conclusion, and this is my thesis, and I, I see how it integrates with your, your answer, is that a big part of it is it lowers your CO2 levels. And I, know, I understand that your oxygen comes up afterwards, but when you lower your, I'm sorry, it increases your CO2 levels because you're in hypoxic air so that you, you, you don't get respiratory alkalosis, you get respiratory acidosis because your CO2 levels go up. But when your CO2 levels go up, it increases the oxygen circulation to your body. Even though you're breathing hypoxic air, that's a normal response. So is that, is that part of the mechanism? Yes, partially it is. It is. But, you know, normally when you are, um, you, when you're getting into hypoxic environment, your breathing increases. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in altitude, it induces a hyperventilation mm -hmm. and hypocapnia. Mm -hmm. When you do this breathing with normal baric air through the mask, or as you did in a, in a cubicle, I must say uh, uh, just that uh, in the cubicle, it's not that efficient as using simply a mask because mm -hmm. the volume which you get on the, in the mask is much more physiologically relevant and you get much faster oscillations. And mm -hmm. um, uh, Yes, uh, the, um, the effect of meditation increases uh, partially. It is because the play of the capillaries, exactly. Mm -hmm. In hypoxia, capillaries became wider. In our brain, for instance, hypoxia induces, uh, increases perfusion of the blood up to 40% in mm -hmm. hypoxia, just a hypoxic response. Mm -hmm. And CO2 plays significant role if it's, uh, for instance, many, many people live continuously in a subclinical hyperventilation. Mm -hmm. So they have much lower CO2 as it, as it uh, better for the mitochondria. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and another term for that would be overbreathing. Overbreathing, exactly. Yeah, when you breathe yeah. too, too deeply, typically, not, if you could breathe faster, but most, mostly it's the the left the depth of your breathing that causes you to expel too much co2 and you get to really low co2 levels and that is dangerous that is really dangerous absolutely especially yeah. when it's a chronic over breathing yeah. and because now people live in a continuous stress this mm -hmm. over breathing establishes automatically mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's a so habit how it's a psychological habit that is really difficult to overcome i just interviewed dr peter litchfield on this 
And he has a lot, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Lichfield's work, but he's one of the experts in the world at addressing the behavioral overbreathing habits with, with psychological behavior modification. Uh, yes, I do agree, but uh, I wouldn't say that this psychological component is very significant because um, <laughs> he would disagree with that. <laughs> really, I, I, I don't. Of course, yeah, we, we should discuss this uh, different yeah. different opinions and ideas yeah. because as soon as people improve quality of their mitochondria, they stop overbreathing. Really? So that's been your exactly. experience. That's been absolutely. Your experience. Okay, because that's what, yeah. because uh, wh where do we get uh, carbon dioxide we produce from mitochondria it's a no. normal metabolite yeah and yeah. if it's if the mitochondria are not active enough if they are um, just lazy for different reasons they just don't produce enough carbon dioxide mm -hmm. and then hyperventilation during stress even further reduces carbon dioxide and then we get in this vicious circle mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so there are two ways you can increase amount of carbon dioxide by very simple means like breathing in a bag like uh, breathing in just a controlled volume or even simply we just increase uh, physiological dead space so you increase volume of uh, the air which is pendling in your trachea if you use mask and the tube then you increase this uh, air which is pendling yeah mm -hmm. by this way you immediately increase partial pressure of co2 and it's and it reduces many symptoms of overbreathing in minutes yeah it's kind of like breathing into a paper bag of some sort yeah but bag. you know this this kind of this this kind of um Devices they are called hypercapnicators, and okay. there are hundreds, virtually hundreds of them patented, and they were produced. Now we have in Russia two or three uh, variants of of these uh, hypercapnicators. Yeah. But nevertheless, it's just a symptomatic treatment, right? Because as soon as you stop it, it's gone. Overbreathing again, uh, yeah. again, and you have the same problem. The other way if you stimulate if you regenerate your mitochondria if you make them work more efficiently economically it produces much better level of endogenous carbon dioxide mm -hmm. it resets the capnometer which we have in our uh, mm -hmm. in our um, brain we have in our mm -hmm. arteries just a kind of we have thermostat and we can we have also capnostat Mm -hmm. Yeah, because normal partial pressure of uh, carbon dioxide is from 35 to 45, but most people are below, lower than 35. So if mitochondria functioning optimally, it automatically levels up the capnostat, and we see a reduction and complete elimination of all problems connected to overbreathing. That's interesting. So I'm wondering if you've, ever, and I want to know, dive deep into what you're um, perceiving as an optimal intervention to improve mitochondrial function. I've got some theories and or, or perceptions on that too, and I'd like to discuss with you. But before we go there, have you ever played with or explored the use of exogenous CO2 therapy? So rather than allowing your body to rebreathe and increase the CO2 that way, but actually administering CO2 is a therapeutic intervention. Uh, yes, of course. Yes, of course. First of all, when you stay in a, uh, in a diving chamber, in hyperbaric chamber, there is automatic control of CO2 level. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are CO2 scrubbers to keep it an optimal level, yeah? Mm -hmm. So we are, I was engaged in this research. And how, how, high did they, how high did they let the CO2 go in those, those chambers? But what percent? Because normally it's, it's, it's a half of one percent, right? Yeah, it's. Or, uh, I, I know it's a, it's a, it's a 0.3, 0.3. So about this, so 0.5, 0 0.6. Yeah. It's already sensible. You people already feel it. Uh -huh. If you uh, if you have this higher higher level for a long time for continuous time, it makes actually some problems uh, because it makes a kind of headache. 
it's it makes it, it produces discomfort. So uh, I, well, excuse me for a moment, but I thought that a common cause of headaches was vasoconstriction, especially for vascular headaches. And the blood vessels in the brain become really tight and they squeeze in the brain. And that, even though the brain doesn't have sensors, it hurt, it the pressure probably causes some discomfort. Yeah, I so, do agree. And then the but, CO2, when you increase it, that uh -huh. that's a magnificent vasodilator and relaxes those blood vessels and the headache disappears. Now, uh, we uh, make a step in the very serious problem of glymphatic system in our brain. Okay. You know, the glymphatic... Because of the, the, the accent, is hard to say. Is it lymphatic or glymphatic? Glymphatic system. With a G? With the G? Uh, yes, with G. Because okay. we have in our brain, we have very limited uh, drainage of the metabolites. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it was the uh, glymphatic system was discovered, I would say, maybe five years ago. Mm -hmm. It's a, a system which uh, provides circulation of cerebrospinal fluid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, the removal of metabolites runs through lymphatic system mm -hmm. yeah? and lymphatic system is very sensitive to the changing pressure of blood blood pressure and blood volume because our uh, skull is not flexible and for instance if uh, delivery of blood increases but simultaneously uh, the uh, release of blood is not released then we have this difference in pressure and we we can feel headache mm -hmm. so uh, and the uh, lymphatic system is uh, providing this drainage of uh, lymphatic pressure, uh, lymphatic uh, cerebral spinal fluid. Mm -hmm. And it is very much controlled by intermittent hypoxia. Mm. Because that feeling of meditation that you had when you were when you in, in this uh, oscillating atmosphere, it is, uh, it is caused by small changes of volume in the brain arteries veins and lymphatic system lymphatic system starts to pump much better during these oscillations and it clears metabolites from the brain much faster hmm. and therefore we uh, we see a very practically instant relief release of some headaches during hypoxic treatment reduction of blood pressure and this meditative state uh, it uh, develops during the change from hypoxia to hyperoxia mm -hmm. because of the drainage in, uh, improved drainage function of lymphatic system mm -hmm. this is at least what i how can i explain what i see with my patients and of course i i do it with myself mm -hmm. interesting so Maybe we can dive into the recommendations you have to optimize mitochondrial function. But before we do that, I can share what I perceive as a useful strategy, because you are correct. Virtually all the CO2 in the body is produced in the mitochondria, electron transport chain, when you're able, ideally, to metabolize carbohydrates, specifically glucose. Uh, which breaks down, I mean, glucose and fat both break down to acetyl-CoA, but the process of converting fat to supply the acetyl-CoA to the mitochondria is problematic, largely because of the way the electrons are shuttled around. And you actually produce mitochondrial efficiency by 25 to 50% when you're metabolizing fat. And you do that when you're fasting or even intermittent fasting, or just have a high fat diet. So that's a potential problem, and you're not going to get maximum CO2 production because the the thing that the the, the fuel that optimizes CO2 production is glucose, no question about it. That that is the, the king of the fuels, and you're going to not only increase CO2 production, you're going to radically you're going to increase metabolic water, structured water, sometimes called deuterium depleted water, otherwise known as, and you will also uh, increase my uh, ATP production by 25 to 30%. And you reduce reactive oxygen species, which is a, you know another issue to be concerned about with longevity. If you have too much oxidative damage, you got a problem. And you reduce something called reductive stress, which contributes to the oxidative damage. So 
That was a mouthful. So I'm wondering if you can comment on that and help me understand how that integrates into your view of mitochondrial function. Well, first of all, I must say that uh, if you don't load your mitochondria continuously, they automatically degrade from just from misuse. Wait, what do you mean by load? The mitochondria can feel only two interventions, two inputs. Mm -hmm. What fuel you deliver to them and mm -hmm. what amount of oxygen you deliver to mitochondria. Okay. Yeah. If there is a continuous flow of fuel, nutrients, and continuous level, stable level of oxygen, the mitochondria undergo degradation. Because during this ad libitum nutrition and ad libitum oxygen, still oxidative damage in mitochondrial DNA results in a growing population of damaged mutated mitochondria. Mm, interesting. Mutated, mutated mitochondria have smaller mole, uh, DNA molecule. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the normal DNA molecule in mitochondria sixteen comma five comma four kilobase kilobase, and it's let, let's say is 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 like this. Mm -hmm. But normal metabolism results in a continuous mutation, and it makes the mitochondrial DNA smaller because mutations repaired very insufficiently. Just a piece of mutated circular DNA will be cut off and the ends will be glued together. Mm, mm. Next step, next step, in a stable situation, what molecules will reproduce faster? Mm -hmm. The smaller. The smaller molecules make their copies a little bit faster than the larger. Mm -hmm. Therefore, if everything is stable, normal, yeah, very comfortable, the um, mutated disadvantages of um, mitochondrial DNA will dominate. Mm -hmm. And we see it with the normal aging process. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. see it in some uh, diseases also when accumulated, accumulating of mitochondrial mutation, especially in neurodegenerative diseases. Yeah. So the, the task is to eliminate continuously eliminate or help natural process of elimination of mutated mitochondria. This process is taking place normally. It is mitophagy, yeah? Mm -hmm. But mitophagy is also not getting better with growing cage, yeah? Mm -hmm. It's also can be, um, it, it can be uh, reduced or slowed down with many mitochondrial uh, toxins. Yeah, and sure. uh, of course with infection. Therefore, and therefore, if we just help this process, this natural process of mitochondrial regeneration, yeah. we prevent accelerated decline of mitochondrial quality. Yeah. And the best tool for this is intermittent hypoxic training. Because when we introduce uh, intermittent hypoxia to the populations of different... Pop in the cell, we mm -hmm. have two populations of mitochondria. Mm -hmm. One original wild-type mitochondria, they are okay, they are perfect, mm -hmm. but the growing population of mutated mitochondria, they are much more sensitive to oscillations. Mm. They don't have enough protective mechanisms because, you know, mitochondrial DNA protects itself uh, there is a lot of antioxidative enzymes like superoxidismutase, catalase, peroxidase. Mm -hmm. But mutated mitochondria don't have enough of these enzymes, so they are just killed yeah. by oxygen question. oscillations. D does mitochondrial DNA have histones? No. As far as it's I only, know, it's, it's only that's only nuclear. It's naked. It's it lays naked in the okay. in the stove in a very okay. hot stove. You, okay. you know the yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Shows, oxid yeah oxidative stress. That's where most all oxidative of that stress. stress. Occurs. That's a and right. also very high temperature. It is oh, shown really? now that the temperature temperature of functioning mitochondria is about fifteen degrees Celsius higher than wow. the environment. I never heard that before. That's amazing. Oh, it's uh, it's uh, publications for since since yeah, 2020. I, I'm not I'm not denying. It. I just never heard of it. 
That's, mm, that's yeah. amazing. And that that tells a lot about the, the stress uh, which uh, yeah, mitochondria yeah. So endure. They, they, they truly are furnaces. Yes, <laughs> they, they truly are. are. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Molecular, biological furnaces. I never knew absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So let me let me go back to, you said there's two strategies to optimize mitochondrial function. One is to, and they're both the same process. Essentially, you need to throttle the fuel up and down. Continuous fuel is a disaster. So continuous oxygen, the same level, continuous food, the same level. So let's go with the food first. So this would support the administration of intermittent fasting, where you're not eating fuel for maybe the majority of the day, maybe eight hours a day, maybe 10 hours a day, you're eating and the rest you're not eating. Is that is that a strategy that you perceive as an optimal from the fuel perspective to optim to to address this issue? Absolutely. What what I see and not not me, it's a lot of research and um, experience in the clinical field that uh, on the uh, fasting state, when you, your the ketone metabolism is much higher, mm -hmm. the mitochondrial energy production is more optimal. When the mitochondria are healthy, when we have healthy mitochondrial population, mm -hmm. but when the mitochondrial population is a mix of mutated and healthy mitochondria, that can cause problems. Therefore, many people who start, uh, they cannot start fasting. They cannot start intermittent fasting or ketogenic mm. diet because mm. they have, their, let's say, 50% mitochondria are dysfunctional. Oh, okay. As soon as we repair mitochondria with uh, gradually introduced intermittent fasting, gradually introducing ketones, and in parallel intermittent hypoxic training, we see immense improvement of energy wow. metabolism we see improvement of uh, oxfos and uh, atp production and interesting most interesting much more economical mm -hmm. so mitochondria in a idling state they consume much less oxygen as uh, in, as an average uh, human being mm -hmm. on the other hand at the physical load or functional load they are much more efficient yeah so mm -hmm. we're optimizing mitochondria. We're improving quality of mitochondria. Okay. So I'm assuming you're doing this in your lab. Is that correct? I do it, let's say, uh, the last 40 years of my okay. life. Okay. As so I, I'm really intrigued because the big question on the table is how, and I don't know that this is really well done outside the research lab is where they have like uh, assays like the seahorse assay. How do you assay mitochondrial function? There is no simple test to see Absolutely. how- yeah, so it's, help... it's very difficult. It's very yeah. challenging on the on the lab level. Yeah, yeah. To, because you know it, it's really because we see very much discrepancy between clinical uh, results and what we see in the labs. Mm -hmm. In Germany, where I work, uh, last time I worked in, in Germany also, we have very good labs for mitochondrial uh, diagnostic, mm -hmm. like Armin Labs um, and uh, BOVs. Mm -hmm. And they have mitochondrial energy test. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it shows uh, the mitochondrial quality. In uh, you take the just blood, and uh, they uh, separate uh, leukocytes, and from leukocytes they uh, extract mitochondria. Yeah, and for, then just, they, just for, let me just insert that you, you, your your pronunciation makes it somewhat hard. It's leukocytes for in, in the typical use, but leukocytes, yeah, yeah, white blood, what white blood yeah. cells, yeah. white blood cells, right. Uh, and we see that uh, really, for instance, with by myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, yeah, yeah, we yeah. see that there is a positive correlation. Yeah, most uh, patients show very low mitochondrial energy production. They show okay, so also you, increased you, proton leak. So it's very clear the the information you're sharing is valid because you're one of the few researchers that has access to these tools to measure mitochondrial function. I wish to God it was a commercial availability. We could we could advance medicine so much more quickly because that's the best tool to measure how healthy you are is you're measuring assaying your mitochondrial function. And we there's no good commercial assays for it. There's just don't exist. 
So uh, it's... you know, it, that was a good news. But the bad news is that uh, we don't see always uh, a really serious correlation because we see sometimes that mitochondrial energy analysis shows there is improvement, but we see no clinical improvement. Oh, and okay. the that reverse, is... and the reverse also. <laughs> so we... we see a drastic clinical improvement, but very, very low or yeah. not at well, all that's... mitochondrial. And it can be explained. It's not something, it can be explained because mitochondrial populations are heterogeneous. They are very different. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. we see in the blood, in white blood cells, it comes from bone marrow, Mm -hmm. And the clinical symptoms we get from neurons, mm. we get from muscles, ah, from liver. Yeah, and there yeah. are different populations of mitochondria. And what is going on in the brain, we don't see immediately in the white blood cells. Yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. So most, Therefore, of the, most of the mitochondrial assays are using white blood cells to measure? Uh, this is uh, this, their standard uh, lab test by Armin Labs. I can send you. I can send you just uh, yeah. links. They, they. I think they, they have also patients from United Kingdom, from United States. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's that's no problem. Okay. Therefore, the most relevant mitochondrial tests, to my experience, mm -hmm. are very simple clinical tests. Okay, what are they? <laughs> ba basic level of uh, lactate in the blood. Oh, blood lactate uh, it, levels. Of course, blood lactate, because yeah. the more lactate the patient has, and it normally correlates with, uh, for instance, with chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, it shows systemic mitochondrial dysfunction. Yeah, 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 correlates. Then well. there are functional clinical tests, just uh, physiological tests. For instance, um, for healthy people, this can be Viva 2 Max. Mm-hmm. VO2max, which can be done very simply, even at home setting uh, with a stationary bike mm -hmm. or treadmill mm -hmm. or running tw 12 minutes like Cooper test. Yeah. And you can uh, you can correlate it with VO2max. The correlation is very high. No, so let me discuss that because I, th I think the lactate might be better. And I'll tell you why, because there's an I've been a was a runner for almost 45 years over four decades because I started very early in my life and I quit like 15 years ago and I, I got to be pretty good with respect to endurance training. Uh, and, and I know there's an adaptive phase. And when you first start, you're not that good. It doesn't mean you're not healthy. It's just that you're not get good at processing this. And you, there's a certain level of continuous activity you need to do to get those ad adaptations. But so that, that somewhat confuses the interpretation of the data. But whereas blood lactate is more of a metabolic level, your biology, biological level, because when you have your lactate levels increase, it means you're reverting to anaerobic fermentation or glycolysis in the, in the cytosol to generate lactate. And that usually is correlated with reductive stress because lactate is a reductant. And, and when you have reductive stress, your electron transport chain does not work that well. It gets really slowed down. So that makes perfect sense that the, the lactate levels, and you can actually measure the, the lactate to pyruvate ratio, the NADH to NAD ratio, and there's and glutathione reduced to oxidized glutathione ratio, probably CoQ10, the same thing. So those are different ways that you can assess what's going on biologically, but it would seem that the lactate levels would, they're not related to this training effect that you'd have to do if you were exercising to get that. So I, I don't dispute that the VO2 max is a useful tool, but I think it needs to be, interpreted in the context of all those other variables. Uh, yes, but there are some some details. Uh, first of all, a physiological level of lactate is pretty, pretty high in healthy people with healthy mitochondria. Because mm -hmm. lactate, especially in, for instance, in the, in the night, it's a very important fuel for brain, for mm -hmm. neurons, mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. astrocytes, and also for our heart. Yeah, so there is, a, because lactate has not, not only um, as an energy giving fuel, it has also signaling function. Mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. it, it's, it works like for, uh, so it's, it has many functions, not only as a fuel. Yeah. 
But on the other it, hand, it, when you it, are running, yeah. of course, first you are running. The most economical run is when you're burning fat. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All marathon uh, winners, they run on fat. Mm -hmm. And they save glucose for the last acceleration. Right, yeah? The sprint, the last sprint. Then for the sprint. And then they have increased lactate level because they go over anaerobic threshold. Mm -hmm. So I think these are different mechanisms. And... Uh, I, I don't see any contradictions here. Okay. All right. So I'm, I'm assuming the, that there should be the same modulation, this peaking and trough of the lactate levels as it is with the, with the, the fuels. And, and so well, let's go, let's finish up on the fuels first. What, what is the, in your experience, extensive experience, what is the, optimal time for intermittent fasting what is the window that and i know it takes a while the average person can't do that 95 95 percent of the population is metabolically inflexible and they they they, they have to adjust to this a few five percent can do it but you know most people can't so but if you were you were healthy enough what would be the optimal is it like is it like you shouldn't eat i mean sachin panda out of uh, salk institute does a lot of work in this and he he states that you should not eat more than 12 hours a day. When you do, that's going to be a problem. And you should go up to maybe 16, maybe 18 hours a day. Then you don't eat. So what is, what is your experience and recommendations in that field? Oh, an average, average recommendation is uh, 8, 16. Okay, so 16. Eight, eight. Yeah, 16, 8. So 16 hours without food and during 8 hours, you can, you can eat, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. With uh, with um, of course with uh, more experience with improvement of metabolic flexibility, which is hundred percent dependent on mitochondria. Mm -hmm. You can make it narrow it instead of uh, six hours. It just one hour a month can be compressed. And uh, I personally, I have maybe five to four hours. Mm -hmm. meal window yeah and uh, yeah. it it it's a very it's a very good synergistically works with hypoxic training oh yeah so i used to do that too until i encountered ray pete's work and th and then that butts up against this whole concept that when you don't have glucose to fuel the mitochondria and maybe maybe you can help me understand this because it may be a non-issue if you if you have a healthy liver because your liver is the primary source of the glycogen, which is the polymers of glucose that would supply your body with sugar when you're not eating. And, and if you have a healthy liver, you probably can go more than a day and still have healthy glucose levels. But once you, you deplete your glycogen levels, then you have to activate your stress hormones and you have to activate glycogen, or glucagon, adrenaline, and cortisol. And those stress hormones are... are pathologic and, and it's done continuously at, at high levels and it, it will accelerate premature death there's no question in my mind they're they're bad news they, they they specifically cortisol it just sucks out the amino acids the protein from your tissues your decreased bone density decreased muscle mass is bad news so what I, have you heard that argument and if you how and if you have how do you reconcile that uh yeah this is a very very important issue First of all, gluconeogenesis is an extremely important evolutionary biological mechanism. Mm -hmm. Because uh, you see, if we take, uh, let's say, a herbivore, some cow or deer, mm -hmm. and we measure their glucose level, so it's about 100 about we, we, as we have in, in our blood. But if we take a cat or a lion, and if we measure glucose level, it will also be about 100. Mm -hmm. Why they don't eat any um, any carbohydrates? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they 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 get glucose from gluconeogenesis, and mm -hmm. gluconeogenesis consumes right. amino acids. Yeah, yeah, that's the cortisol. That's it's what it does. Oh no, for gluconeogenesis. Yeah, that's how you turn uh, it. Off. I understand. The the, the, uh, the the amino acids, like you know, the in the in the in the liver, there is a process of deamination. Right. And they, they, the resynthesis of glucose. Normal liver produces about 180 grams of glucose a day. 
or more. Yeah. yeah, the most yeah. people don't Even know more. that. Yeah, but yeah. but it you should be healthy enough. You should be metabolically flexible. You should have good mitochondria. Well, then it functions perfectly. But, he, but here's the point: in order to flip that switch and produce those, you have to activate it, and you activate it by releasing these stress hormones, glucagon, adrenaline, and cortisol. And those stress hormones have negative adverse consequences on your biology. If, if activated chronically, so, uh, there's no question you can can you can get really healthy glucose levels by doing that, but you're going to do it at a price. So your body wants the fuel continuously, and it will set. It, if your blood sugar drops too low, you are dead. Yes, lactate can fuel your brain. Yes, ketones can fuel your brain, but it needs glucose. Without glucose, you're dead. Hundred percent. I do agree. I do agree because uh, our erythrocytes, red blood cells, they, yeah, they have no mitochondria. They right. survive exclusively from glucose. From glucose, yeah, that, that's true. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but um, stress hormones are uh, when they are continuously released. Of course, it's a mm -hmm. catastrophe. That's but what I'm saying. There is a pulsatile release, stress, and then relaxation for repair, for recovery, stress, yeah. and then relaxation. This is like periodicity in training of endurance athletes. Yeah. If they're I... overstressed, they got, they got injuries, they got chronic injuries, and uh, aerobic power will be reduced. But if the properly organized training, they have recovery periods when mm -hmm. they replenish all the, okay. uh, all the exhausted hormones. And of course, it's a combination of stress and relaxation stress and relaxation any continuous stress depletes hormones exhausts uh, steroid hormones and induces oxidative stress all yeah. right so i think i figured it out and my attempt to explain the dilemma at least my my perceptive dilemma i answered the question and it, it, it's related to your liver's ability to store glycogen if you have sufficient glycogen stores, you can go for 16 hours without eating and not activate your stress response. If you go for a lot longer, specifically, certainly after two days or three days, 100% of almost everyone over three days, then no one has that much glucose stores or glycogen stores. Uh, then you're going to activate the, the only way you stay alive is activate the stress hormone. So I think it, but here's the caution, the caveat, I think, and I like your input on it is that a third 40% of the people have liver disease. They have an NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And they that impairs your body's ability to store, to actually produce glucogen or glu glucose through glu gluconeogenesis and, and store it as polymers in your liver. You just can't store as much. So then you, you have to be more careful. You have to be really careful. because Fortunately, and, and usually it's things like linoleic acid, omega-6 fats, and... Uh, too much estrogen, those those damage the liver big time, and toxins, of course. But if you have a damaged liver, it's, it's not going to work as well. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Therefore, maybe not. Of course, not. Of course, to a lot of people, they don't get that. That's a big issue because liver disease is pervasive. Yeah, and I think that this pandemic of liver disease now it's uh, just the other. It's a continuation of uh, metabolic unflexibility. Yes, because yes, 100%. Do, do, right. In the nature, in the nature, there is always periods of uh, lavishness and fasting. There is mm -hmm. nothing to eat for days, sometimes weeks, mm -hmm. and animals survive. And people also survive who sign for very long fasting. You know, there is a very successful cancer uh, survivors who mm -hmm. survive just because of prolonged fasting. Yeah, but the, the, I'm not disputing that those exist. I don't think that's the optimal strategy, though. I think that you run into the risk when because then you're when you do that strategy, you are activating stress hormones 100%. There's no way you can go more than two days and not activate your stress hormones. It's just biologically impossible. So you have to counter the benefit, and there is a benefit against the downside, and it's a balance, you know. And, and you do it too much, and it's go, it's going to be problematic. It's always a trade-off, of course. Yeah. You need just to balance it very finely. You need yeah. to monitor symptoms, clinical yeah. symptoms, just to listen to your body. That's the success of treatment of very serious uh, chronic diseases. Yeah. 
All right. So I, I think, you know, I think you've helped me understand just the dialogue with someone who's really, really smart about mitochondrial function. The people like you are few and far between. Your level of expertise is pretty extraordinary. So I appreciate the opportunity to speak with someone like you. <laughs> help me understand it. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, I, I, I actually, I'm biogerontologist also. Yeah? Okay, the good. first application of uh, intermittent hypoxia as anti-aging mm -hmm. intervention. I made presentation in 2008 in Cambridge by uh, Aubrey de Grey, yeah, mm -hmm. the Sense Foundation. Mm -hmm. But since then, since then, I, I've seen that uh, it works much more obviously in uh, problematic conditions which are really, really uh, dominating now. Yeah, mm -hmm. For instance, Lyme disease, mm -hmm. Borreliosis. Yeah? Mm -hmm. I applied this treatment since 2006. Mm -hmm. yeah? I now have more than 200 patients with chronic Lyme cured with basically with intermittent hypoxic training, of course, also nutritional component and yeah. some necessary. I don't doubt. And you could yeah. probably add dozens and dozens and dozens of other diseases. No question. And yeah, I because it's all about mitochondria. I, it's all about mitochondria, 100%. I really appreciate your passion about longevity and bi uh, biogerontology, as you mentioned. But I, and I, there's no question intermittent hypoxia training works. It's my speculation that it's working largely as a result of increasing CO2 levels. And it's the, and, and there's, there's other benefits. I'm not saying it's the only one. No question there's other benefits, but the increased CO2 level is where the magic is. And it, 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 CO2 does it in a few different ways, primarily because it forms this cloud. It, the CO2 directly attaches to the proteins, uh, specifically lysine and histidine. And it forms this electric cloud over the protein that protects it. And it actually modulates the expression, the functional expression of that hormone or that protein, which are typically hormones. Most of the, most of the hormones are proteins. So you can make the, activate them or you just radically increase the efficiency of the, of the hormones or the proteins and the hormones in your body. And then it also, uh, th that's why I mentioned, asked the question about the histones. The histones are proteins too. And these are the proteins that surround the DNA, mitochondria, not mitochondrial, nuclear DNA, and they modulate the expression. So it's, it's epigenetic control of your body's ability to manifest, manifest, but produce proteins in your body. Have you heard of acromancia before? It's been around for 20 years. I don't know if you Yes, of course, acromancia. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I gave it to my patients. Okay, good. So you knew about it. So, and acromancia works primarily because it increases insulin-like substance, specifically GLP-1, glucagon-like peptide, and it helps modulate control. I mean, it's actually been approved now. It has FDA indication for treating diabetes and, and by secondary implication, obesity. So if you can, and population, it's normally supposed to be about 10% of your microbiome, but most populations now have like less than 1%. So the key is not to take a magical acromancia probiotic, and they exist and they do help, but the more effective strategy is to give them the fuel, which would be fibers too, if, you're, if you don't have uh, a problem. Because one of, the, one of the things when you have micro, when you have microbial imbalance in your intestine, you have an excess of gram negatives. And the gram negatives are the ones when, when you that produce endotoxin, LPA, lipopolysaccharides. And when you have too much of that, that, that will destroy mitochondrial function. That and omega-6 are the two primary culprits that destroy mitochondrial function. No question. So the key is to modulate that endotoxin production. And ac interestingly, acromancia is a gram-negative bacteria mm -hmm. that does not make endotoxin. It doesn't make it. And when you augment the production of acromancia or acromancia-like compadres because there's probably more that's just the biggest one but when you increase the production of these there's a there's a microbiological microbiological uh principle it's called competitive inhibition so they grow and they crowd out the other bad guys so you radically reduce endotoxin mm -hmm. when you do that so it's got a long number of different mechanisms and i just think that the co2 i mean it could be it's not 
in place of, it could be done in, con in conjunction with something like intermittent hypoxia training. And I think the mechanism would, would enhance it. And you, it's just the other hidden value of CO2, but I think it all relates to the CO2. I think uh, it's my belief that CO2 intervention is the single best longevity hack I've ever seen encountered. It's CO2. So what is your, what I gave you a long dialogue. I'm, I just really appreciate an expert like you knows the field. I mean, this is your discipline. What do you think about that? I think that, of course, it's very interesting, extremely interesting. But why not using CO2? Because we have CO2 buffs. We have CO2 yeah. injections in the in, in the skin, you know, hypodermic injections. So it's a, it's a known, very well-known option. In USA, by the way, there were also some scientists and practitioners who used it. I know, for instance, there was Laszlo Meduna, who wrote a very thick book about his experience with uh, carbon dioxide inhalations. Yes, it's different. Yeah, Not as good as just because yeah, it doesn't, it's it's it very extreme. The... There are many facets of CO two. For instance, as a, it works as a very important guard of our genome at all. Uh huh. Because for sure. the uh, the um, uh, the most uh, extensive damage for genome is from peroxynitrite. Oh and yeah. CO two neutralizes peroxynitrite. Yeah? I did not that know means, that. Do you have any papers on that? Oh, yes. There's a lot of publications. Jeez, they show I because never knew that. Continuous, uh, you know, the problem is if there are impulse, um, impulse, impulses from uh, free radicals and uh, uh, nitrous oxide mm -hmm. and O, that's very important, yeah? That's a killing viruses, bacteria, mm -hmm. and this also participates in signaling. But if the both are continuously stable on the higher level, it damages all around. Because peroxynitrite is just exactly, it damages genome, yeah? So well, it damages everything. CO2, it's, it's CO2 of down. course, CO2 is helping to neutralize yeah, this, so it, it just supports genome stability and it automatically means it prevents, it uh, slows down the aging process. Yeah. yeah, and it also supports the histone. It modifies the proteins in, in the histones, those amino yeah. acids. It, it, yeah. So it, it, there's two mechanisms. And for those who don't know, it's the nitric oxide that combines almost instantaneously. I mean, it's, it's almost unmeasurable with, with uh, superoxide to form peroxynitride. Exactly. And it the, the half-life of that is, I think it's a million times longer than the hydroxyl radical, which is, it's not as potent a, a reactive oxygen species, but it collectively it is because it lasts so much longer. It could actually travel outside the cell into other cells. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just extraordinary. And, and it's just, it's like something normally hydroxyl radical only travels like the distance of a protein and it's gone. It just doesn't last. So it's a localized damage, typically in the mitochondria. But this peroxynitrate is bad news. Oh, bad news. That is, I got it. Do, do you have paper? I just, if I just look it up on PubMed, would I find those that association? Peroxynitrate? I, will, I can send you, I can send you links to publications. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty good. Because I mean, there's, you know, Ray Pete was one of the, the biologists who, uh, brought this knowledge to the forefront. And he used some examples of mammals, like the naked mole rat, who's a common example in longevity research, and, and also bats that lived 10, 20, 30 times longer than their other equivalent. In, in exactly. Yeah, yeah, so what, what's the mechanism? There's a good suggestion that it might be CO2. Mm -hmm. CO2 in naked mole rats, absolutely clear. They, they have hypoxic hypercapnia in their mm -hmm. in their Yes, dwells. absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. clear. It was measured, it was shown. Yeah, yeah. But there is, of course, some evolutionary evolutionary mechanisms which are outside of it. Because in the bats, bats, they live in ventilated caves. Mm -hmm. There is mm -hmm. no hypercapnia there. Yeah, yeah. They, but they undergo hypothermia. They are extremely well they are metabolically flexible till extreme ah. <laughs> because they, they can induce hypometabolic state. And of course, this state slows down aging process. Okay. Well, good. This is good. All right. So if, if someone wanted to explore intermittent hypoxia training, what are your recommendations? And, and how could they find more about what you're doing? 
Or they can just go to my website. Okay. Yeah. Go to my website, just or type in Google Arkady Prokopo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they will find I, I have a lot of videos okay. uh, with explanations, and I now I'm preparing um uh, educational seminars for physicians in English. So mm -hmm. it's under development. Oh well good. Well, I want to thank you for all your kind work, and uh, it's been great. I was just—I was so looking forward to talking with you. Thank you, thank you for invitation. It was great talk. Yeah, yeah, good.